If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah. I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm extremely murdery. Thingy, 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 We are still here. We exist. What's up? We took a week off unintentionally. I am so tired. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Yes. Welcome. welcome. To Wednesday. We had a lot of things going on. Uh, I had a show. I got sick. We moved. We moved. Chloe got sick <laughs> Fucking again. Fucking hate moving. Chloe's been really sick this week, so send your love and good thoughts. But healing, we're out here. Healing thoughts. We're out here telling some stories. We didn't. Some, yeah, we talking didn't want about some to, mysteries. Yeah, to go any longer without giving you all a couple of mysteries. So let's jump right into it. We're just going. Chloe, what do you have for us this week? Okay, okay. Okay, okay, okay. Um, oh, God. How no, do you do that it? was bad. How do you do it? What is it? Nope, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. So we have a. I got like a nice mob mystery mobster mysteries yeah so you know i mean i really love that shit all that bonnie and clyde shit and like even though i'm learning from lpl that they weren't as you know (laughs) tough as they seem it's never like the movie (laughs) it really it's not yeah um but this character or i mean he's real but he's also i guess is a character i don't watch boardwalk empire but i guess he's like portrayed Mm. in boardwalk empire as well sure but nobody really knows how or um, who or why Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was murdered. So 
Let's talk about him. So he was born February 28th, 1906, and he grew up in um, in Brooklyn, right? Middle Brooklyn, New York. So he had a troubled upbringing, um, and his parents worked really hard for very little money. And I don't know if it's because of this, but um, he had an early life of crime, right? So he started out pretty early. He dropped out of school. He did a lot of petty thefts before eventually um, making some allies and joining a gang. So Bugsy Siegel always had like a violent temper and he was dramatic and he had he was moody. Um, He was his Nick. He was his nickname. Bugsy actually means crazy as a bed bug something mm. like that it's like bugsy oh, sure. and he hated it like he hated that name uh. so like no one ever like addressed him <laughs> nice. as bugsy but they just talked about him as bugsy wow so yeah and that's like how he's known yeah but nobody would ever like say hey bugsy they would just be like so here's what bugsy said today like he'd, yeah like, punch you in the face exactly yeah. so um and I guess this is, like, a thing with gangsters. Like, their nicknames sometimes um, aren't actually addressed to them because it's, like, mm. not a good nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so out on the streets, you know, he lived a really rough life, just a kid. He was really manipulative, though, even at an early early age, right? So he developed a, a protection racket to survive life on the streets. So basically what he did was, I had to actually look up. I had to look up what this was because I didn't know what a protection racket was. But basically, it's that <laughs> other it. other people provide protection for him um, against all the powerful gangs that were there at the time. And he so he threatened shopkeepers that he'd burn their merch if they didn't pay him and, pro- and provide pr- right. protection. So it's extortion, basically. Right. Yeah. And so his criminal record started early, and it only grew as he got older. He was convicted of armed robbery. He was convicted of murder. He's been convicted of rape. Uh, not a great dude, as not a good person. Many uh, yep. the mob lifestyle usually isn't built with um, the human life in mind. Saying someone's a gangster doesn't usually mean they're also a humanitarian. That's very. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, so the mob is called the Bugs and Meyer Mob, all right? It operated in New York and New Jersey. So Bugsy Siegel met Meyer Lansky during his teen years, and they became fast friends and eventually were partners in crime all the way up until um, Bugsy's murder. And so they soon formed their own gang. Um, and Lansky was kind of uh, the brains, and Siegel was the bronze, like the executor and stuff like that. So they gained a lot of power as the Prohibition era, you know, came upon us. So they recruited a lot of big time crime bosses, including Charles Lucky Luciano and his partner, Frank Costello. And they raised a lot of hell. And um, both Frank Costello and Charles Lucky Luciano uh, continue to be and Lansky and um, Bugsy Siegel are like his main, you know, hangouts i guess they're they're the people who would have the best info and we'll talk about them later they'll come up later so he's got expert gunmen um and so at this point they're doing all kinds of stuff mostly um car thefts and they helped bootleggers uh with transportation and um their supplies and like keeping their secrets and security and all that good stuff he hand so they also handled scheduled hits and they killed rivals all the time so Charles Lucky Luciano 
hired four hitmen, and some say Siegel was one of them, to take out this guy named Salvatore Manzano, and he is the leader of the Bonanno crime family. So what they did was they went to his offices, posing as accountants, and they shot and stabbed Manzano to death. And that was what gave Siegel and the entire gang a reputation. Like, that was their big hit. So they just grew from there and they made their money through bootlegging and, of course, gambling, hitting the books. Um, the gang had, you know, um, as as shown from the Salvatore Manzano murder, that they had an overall violent reputation. You know, like they extorted they extorted money from Jewish shopkeepers and money lenders and shit like that, even though I'm pretty sure Siegel grew up in a Jewish family. Um they hid their so um they money laundered they hid their wealth behind a car and truck rental garage business mm. uh and that's where they house yeah. like right that's where they like house all their like stolen cars and stolen sure. booze and shit um right so they were notorious right so the N- the NYPD described them as quote vicious and um, and i reportedly Siegel straight up psychopath he liked watching his victims suffer he had no mm. mercy so Siegel and Lucky Luciano formed the National Crime Syndicate in 1929. So um, the National Crime Syndicate is an organization of at least 14 criminal gangs, right? So it started at um, – it was all organized at a meeting that was, later, that was later dubbed the Atlantic City Conference where leaders of organized crime like all over the U.S. came together and – they divided like gang tor- territories to prevent future gang turf wars. So it's kind of a meeting of, of, of discussion and relative peace, sure. I suppose. A detente of sorts. Right. So the, the branch of the syndicate that carried out the murders was titled Murder Inc. by the press. Um, have you heard of Murder Inc. before? Uh, have you heard I mean, of this? I, I think I've heard that just as a, a phrase. As a I, phrase? I've never heard of like this in particular. It's... I mean, we could talk about Murder, Inc. That's a whole other episode. But um, uh, so they carried out uh, hits throughout the 30s and the 40s for lots of crime bosses. So they were like a, a, a business. It was weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel is one of the leading figures of Murder, Inc. So at this point, Siegel is out here and he's making bank. You know, he's doing a lot of. Uh, a lot of bootlegging. He's drinking a lot of booze. He's hanging out with girls and um, doing a lot of gambling, make a lot of money. He had tons of friends, but he also had tons of enemies. He was even he was even like buddies with Al Capone. Like when Al Capone had a warrant out for his arrest, he was like, "Hey, like you you can hide out in my aunt's place for a while." Why does Al Capone come up in every single mob <laughs> thing that we ever talk about? <laughs> Because he time. was just such a central figure in the everywhere. in the entire country, you know, true. wild. Um, and so Siegel, at this point, you know, he's not afraid to show off his wealth at all. Loves fancy cars, fancy clothes, treating people. Um, there was kind of like two different sides I got from from reading about him was that some people were like, oh, yeah, he was so generous. And this some people were like, dude was fucking evil. And honestly... <laughs> Porque no los dos? Like, why not both? He probably was both. People contain multitudes. Uh, right. Um, so he married his high school sweetheart, Esta Krakauer, and together they had two, da- two daughters. Um, so 
as he as you know as he gets older and stuff he kind of gains a rep as a womanizer and eventually him and his wife split up in 1946 um and i guess he reportedly confessed to an acquaintance in las vegas that he had personally killed at least a dozen people um one of the more notable kills under Siegel's belt was the murder of the Fabrizzo brothers. So they were acquainted with um, another American gangster named Waxy Gordon. So there's all these kinds of networks and shit and people mm-hmm. snitching on each other and people get mad for no reason. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> Gordon. So uh, Waxy Gordon wanted revenge on both Lansky and Siegel after they gave the IRS information about his tax tax evasion. Um, and so that led to his imprisonment in 1933. So Gordon's like, all right, fuck this. He hires the uh, Fabrizzo brothers to take out Lansky and Siegel. But Siegel hears of these plans like before anything could happen. And he kills them both. He guns them down first. Wow. Um, so and all of this killing, you know, makes him more and more enemies. Um, so the mob sends him out to California, both for expansion because they wanted to ex- um do more business out there as well, and his own safety. So um, this is actually turns out to be, I mean, even though he it does lead to his uh, demise, but uh, Bugsy Siegel thrived mm-hmm. out in California. Um, he hung out in California and Hollywood. Um, he does a lot of partying, lots of gamblings with, gambling with celebrities. He buys like a massive villa and like all the, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he establishes a gambling racket, okay, and recruits Mickey Cohen, an L.A. gangster, head of the Cohen crime family, as his number two. And he uses this money to establish a drug trade from Mexico to L.A. So he's bringing money now through mm-hmm. drugs, gambling, bootlegging, all of it. Um, he even extorted movie studios for money by taking over trade unions organizing a strike and wow. then forcing the studios to pay him off to get the employees to work again. That's a, a complicated extortion scheme. Deep. Yes. That shit goes deep. You can tell that he got better at this. As he, I mean, crime is not good, No, but just to be clear, just to be clear, yeah. no one should do these things, but that's pretty impressive. He, Dude's he went from dedicated. Like a kid being like, give me your money or I'll beat you up, to yeah. I'm going to take over an organization in order to foment unrest at a private company so they'll give me money because i'll explain (laughs) this to them like that's meanwhile millions of dollars flowing in right um and so he then finds a business opportunity out in las vegas where he hangs out sometimes anyway because vegas um but but, there's a lot of vegas going on yes but What's known as the strip today wasn't really a thing sure. in the 30s. Right, right, right. And Siegel is one of the first people. This is why he's um, known, actually. he's is one of the first people to put a big casino in the middle of the, in the desert. Mm. And um, Siegel, and the Flamingo still stands today, is, uh, oh. is I, I'm pretty sure. I'll have to double check on that. Um, but uh, the Flamingo, the Flamingo Hotel. I'm pretty sure it got knocked down, like, in, like, the 90s or something. Oh, okay. Um, I might have. I might. I mean, I might even have information on it in here. I'm not. I'm not really sure. But um, so, like I said, what's known as the strip today isn't really wasn't really a thing in the 30s, and he's one of the first people to put a big casino, you know, in the desert. So he sees El Rancho, which is 
the first resort on the Vegas Strip. Mm -hmm. And he's like, wow, that's they're making tons of money. He sees how well it's doing. So he develops a new business plan to build his own resort and convinces, you know, his best bud, Meyer Lansky, to sink some money into it. So let's talk about the Flamingo. A few years earlier, when Siegel had traveled to Vegas, like looking at business opportunities, he talked with a man named William R. Wilkerson, and he is the the owner of the Flamingo Hotel. So in May 1946, he decides that the agreement with Wilkerson had to be changed. So they talked, they had some agreements, but in May of 1946, he's like, we're going to change it a little why don't you just give me control of, of the Flamingo? So with the Flamingo, Siegel would supply gambling, the best liquor and food, and have the biggest entertainers at reasonable prices. So, and he believed that, like, these attractions would lure both rich people and vacationers who were like, hey, I want to gamble. So right. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Um, but because Siegel does business the dirty way, if Wilkerson didn't give over his business, he would have killed him anyway. So it was like, I'm going to get it. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like an, um, a peaceful, you know what? Uh, you know what? We should just be partners. It was, one might say, an offer he couldn't refuse. Oh, wow. I mean, to coin a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. Um, so... The Flamingo was put under Benjamin Siegel's name, and Wilkerson went into hiding for a while in Paris. Um, so Siegel had a you know big head. He wanted the biggest and the best of everything. The Flamingo Hotel was already under construction at the time, but its investors had run low on money. So Siegel, you know, bops in and he promises he could get it done with just one million dollars, but costs as you know he wants more and more costs quickly rise to six million dollars which today is in 1946 um is a little over 60 million dollars today so pretty pricey um and it was kind of a result of both stolen money and just like bad business decisions Mm -hmm. basically um and so at this point all the people he's borrowed money from mobsters they're pissed you know they're not happy of course they're putting money into this random resort in the middle of the desert that isn't making progress um however once the flamingo was up and running guests flooded to vegas and soon the business was actually pulling in a lot of money but ideally it it wasn't it wasn't enough um Mm -hmm. so let's let's get into the murder so Benjamin Bugsy Siegel has his name in the Flamingo, but he's, uh, what's the word? He's gone through a a lot of trouble to get where he's at. Uh, Stepped on a lot of toes. That's what I wanted to say. So his fate was, you know, it was already sealed. Although Mm. we don't know by whom, it's likely that his death death was Mm mob-related. So on June 20th, 1947, uh, Siegel was at his girlfriend Virginia Hill's house in Beverly Hills, uh, sitting peacefully. Oh my goodness! It's eleven o'clock. It's eleven o'clock, everybody. All right, zone. we're continuing. On <laughs> on June twentieth, nineteen forty-seven, uh, Siegel was at his girlfriend Virginia Hill's house in Beverly Hills, chilling, sitting peacefully, reading the L.A. Times. At 10.45 p.m., a sniper armed with a thirty caliber military carbine 
fired through the window, hitting Siegel four times. Siegel was hit twice in the face, um, killing him instantly. And uh, the pressure from that, like some sources say that uh, he was shot in the eyeball, but he was actually shot twice in the head. And the pressure of that is what propelled his eyeball 15 feet across the room. What? Yeah. That's so gruesome. Um, yeah. His death was gruesome. Oh my God. And it was bloody. It's That's like... A fucking movie. And his... um, Not to diminish that a person died, right? But Right. Wow. But uh, the picture of his, like, dead body was all over the newspapers. Of course. Yeah. In those days, they, like, didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, had a pretty sad funeral. Only his brother and rabbi showed up. Because it's kind of like... Because <laughs> he murdered people his whole life. Also, but also, like, also, like you don't want to go... Oh, sure. ...show up in support and go to a funeral that the mob likely took out like right, you don't right. you don't really want to like oh you were at seagull's funeral like right y'all close like you yeah, know exactly. so theories to this day you know we don't know all right we don't know who killed single <laughs> seagull we don't know who pulled the trigger or for exactly what reasons um so you know, like I said, it was probably mob-related, whether it was because of, you know, the construction cr- costs that went up or um, there were suspicions that he'd been stealing from bosses and there was also just overall an internal power struggle, you know. But none of this was ever really determined. New York uh, killer John Frankie Carbo is one of the uh, many named uh, people who could have done it. So according to New York journalist and author Larry McShane, um, even former Philadelphia mafia boss Ralph Natal, who uh, later a mob turn- turncoat, believes that see- that he was the hit was carried out by Carbo and it was set up by Lansky. Uh, really? his business partner, childhood friend. Yeah. Uh, the motive being that he was, was, you know, the business practices. He was messing with people's mm-hmm. money. He was taking advantage, breaking promises. It's business. I, I guess. Mm. Um, some others disagree. Another theory. Um, so in, in a 2017 interview at the mom museum with author Jeff Shoemaker, um, so he's the, the senior director of, of content. So he knows all about this stuff. Um, he, he, wait, wait, hold on. I think I read this wrong. In, in a 2017 interview at the Mob Museum with author Jeff Shoemaker, the museum's senior director of content, this other guy named Sindler, now in his 90s, said that killing Siegel would have required permission from Charles Lucky Luciano. And he was the head right. of everything. He was the head of the five families. Right. Yeah. And he would not have, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have ordered a hit like that. Mm. It didn't, wouldn't make any sense. Okay. Um, and the, he also states that the financial motive doesn't add up because reportedly Lansky had paid back like the investors and just the investors who didn't want to be par- part of it anymore. He paid them back. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it seemed like it was going to work out. Like right. there wasn't like a lot of financial pressure per se. Per se. Um, moreover, the okay. So the way that the hit happened, the method that they used to kill Siegel wasn't normally how mobs do it. Mm. So um, firing a weapon from outside a house increases the miss of missing, increase, increases the chances of missing. So that's not how that happens. They usually. Um, they prefer the method of uh, 
a shot to the back of the head by a killer seated in uh seated behind the victim in a car right right that sort of thing you know Guaranteed. and and that right that sort that's the sort of killing that reduces um the risk of missing so there's right. a guarantee so um there's also a little bit of a a, a revenge uh love story type thing with Virginia Hill where she, uh, she orchestrated it but it was really ridiculous and I didn't want to talk about it because <laughs> okay. it was really dumb not plausible. and not plausible okay. <laughs> if you'd like to read about it you, you yeah. can yeah. but um yeah that's my quick <laughs> so did you read anywhere that it could have been like law enforcement Sur- like surreptitiously like the CIA no. or the FBI no I never heard that I don't know. I was just thinking. I like, mean, it's a possibility. Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, like the, the CIA, like early CIA did a, a lot of stuff that just like maybe no one even like wrote the records down, you know. Yeah. And it seemed like a military hit in yeah. a way. Yeah. So. Um, it was it was a sniper. Right. So someone with military training, at least yeah. uh, one would think so. Um, all right, so my sources are the Wikipedia pages, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, and Bugsy and Meyer Mob, and the Atlantic City Conference, um, the the Mob Museum article by uh, Larry Henry, and all this interesting dot com article by Gina Demuro, and um, this blog called um, Den of Geek had an article by Tony Sokol that I got a lot of information on. And that was based off of Boardwalk Empire and comparing it to what really happened versus mm. what happened in the episode. Interesting. But, um, yeah. Cool. That's the mob. Good, good. What do you got for us? Okay, so mine's a little bit different. Um, I was kind of inspired by your... God, it's been so long. Was it, like, the episode before this where you did the one about, like, the White Witch of Rose Hall? I think it was... I think so. It was, like, one or two episodes ago. I can't remember. Right. But anyway, um, oh, and just to answer the question from your episode, because I looked it up, the Flamingo is still standing. It was not torn down or anything. I think I was thinking of the Sands, which was torn down. But anyway, I think, pretty sure. So anyway, um, I'm going to do sort of a historical person mystery, um, which I feel like is a new type of, you know, we talk about like the different types of mysteries, like how many are there? I think this is a new type of mystery. Now we can, we can find more of the, did this historical person was the, were they real or not? Or what's the real person behind it? You know, kind of the mystery surrounding that. And this also the, my topic for this week kind of taps into my natural affinity for nerdy words, you know, which I'm want to speak of. Yes, often. So, and of course, Chloe knows about this. Um, so I talk about it all the time. And w- one of the words that I enjoy is the word Luddite. Okay. And we're talking about like, what you know, what does Luddite yes. mean? So if you don't know, Luddite is, according to the Random House Dictionary, a uh, someone who is, quote, opposed or resistant to new technologies or technological change. Okay. Uh, you know, uh Random House Dictionary via dictionary.com. And what, what they also say, did you like my... Yes. Yeah, that it's great. Totally intentional. So what um, dictionary.com also says is that there were members of organized resistance groups in the early 19th century in England who actively destroyed then new technology with Ned Ludd as their avatar of resistance. Um, and... The site even lists Ned Ludd as, 
quote, an 18th century uh, Leicestershire worker who originated the idea. But the problem with this is Ned Ludd may not have ever existed or been a real person. So that's kind of my mystery that I'm going to talk about for this week. So you had a question. What kind of technologies did they... Like yeah, I'll kind of get into it. that. Okay. Um, there, there's, a, I'll actually talk about that quite a bit. So, um, there may have been like a version of this person named like Edward Ludlum or Ned Ludnum. There's like different kind of hypotheses as to like who, because there seem it definitely seems like there's like some, and I think that's why it's a mystery, right? There's like some historical basis for like where this came from. So there's like something here, but it's like not totally clear what exactly so no one knows like really for sure but some wikipedia our friend wikipedia yeah say that quote in say in 1779 ludd is supposed to have broken two stocking frames in a fit of rage um and a stocking frame is uh it's, it's like this early like technology that was used in like weaving and making like stockings like women's stockings okay. Um, and it was the kind of thing where there was like a rich guy or a company that owned the stocking frame. Like it's a really, you know, like a expensive piece of technology. Right. But then the worker brings it into their house and uses it at their house and they pay rent on it to use the machine. Right. Okay. And then they get paid for the stuff that they make. Okay. Um, all of, this is important, like, because this kind of whole thing will come into play later. And the fact that it's, like, in their houses is, like, an important, like, oh, de- okay. de- detail. So I want to just, like, highlight that early. So um, the the this, like, mythical Lud, right, whoever he was, his intentions, while it's, like, tied to this, like, technological resistance idea, were not entirely clear, like, in, in the sort of, like, mythical story even, right? Um, in some versions, he's, like, angry at his dad, you know, and some versions he's just, like, crazy in that way that, like, people used to think people were just, like, he's just a crazy person, I don't know. He has daddy issues. It, he, it seems like Ned may have had, yes, some daddy issues, but he also lived on, um, even if he never existed, as Captain Ludd, King Ludd, General Ludd giving him a salute wow as the imaginary leader of groups of people who gathered to actively resist what they perceived as oppression from the british authorities which you know british authorities historically are not you know in want of lots of oppression going on all over the literally over the entire world at one point (laughs) which is crazy um uh, yeah right and um but, but truly um and they're like and yes they these people's grievances were also very very much legitimate um in the late 18th early 19th century in uh england well wales you know other parts of the british isles um people were really getting screwed they were underpaid overworked uh and the they were talking about this right they were trying their hardest to talk to the king or to parliament it was they were just being ignored you know they it wasn't really like getting through so eventually their grievances kind of like got to the point where they started engaging these acts of civil disobedience like frame breaking protesting yes and their form of protest was this um 
practice of frame breaking where and it's kind of what I was mentioning earlier they would go into the house right where the the frame was and they would literally break it apart with hammers and whatever so that there could not there was no more frame and you couldn't exploit the workers cuz they couldn't work so it's a form of like strike and and it it is violent in the sense that it's like property destruction but i think it's also important to note that like they weren't there to attack the person in fact the person who in whose house it was often was in cahoots with them because they wanted to earn a higher wage they wanted you know better conditions they were part of the resistance group as well which made it really easy and also in some cases meant that those people were arrested but then magistrates were like oh no you can't do that you can't, like, arrest someone because they were the victim of a crime just because you suspect they wanted to... Unless you can prove gross negligence, that's, like, not cool. <laughs> like, we have to have some rights here. Okay, come on. Even, like, 18th century, you know, 19th century England. So, um, yeah. Um, they they talk um, in this book called The Skilled Laborer, 1760 to 1832, um, about some some kind of particulars about this. Um, so this was in, um, an edition of the Nottingham Review, uh, which is a newspaper, um, in, on December 20th of 1811. And it describes kind of one theory of this whole Ned Ludd thing. So the original Ned Ludd, according to the Nottingham Review, was a boy apprenticed to learn framework knitting at ANSI near Leicester, being averse to confinement or work. He refused to exert himself, whereupon his master complained to a magistrate, who ordered a whipping. Ned, in answer, took a hammer and demolished the hated frame. His later fortunes, history does not relate. Um, here's another... Oh, did you have a question? Well, there's so many different stories. Like... There, there are, yeah. And I know I'm kind of, I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, but uh, um, there's, uh, let me tell you another, uh, e- even one more version of this story, okay. which came from John Blackner's book, History of Nottingham, which also uh, came out in 1811. Um, in this version, a young man named Ludnum took hammer to his father's frame after being told to help in the work. Apparently, after this, frame breakers uh, would jokingly say, Ned Ludd did it. And then it just oh, sort of caught on from okay, there. Okay, okay. Um, so by 1812, the Luddites were born and breaking frames under the supposed tutelage of King Ludd. So this all happened, like, pretty quickly. Okay. You know, 1811, 1812s, not that far after 1779, when the supposed person existed, maybe. <laughs> um, quite a ways... Um, so and, and you know this was um, under the banner of like I said like King Lud you know uh, gone from being like this uh, petulant boy with daddy issues to being like the leader of a resistance group somehow mm-hmm. so it's kind of a funny thing maybe uh, sometimes and um, you know these frame breakers um, yeah let's talk a little bit about more about I I wrote this a long time ago. <laughs> And it's, like, kind of confusing. <laughs> I'm realizing now this, like, write-up that I did. <laughs> so, nice. um, yeah, it's like, why did I um, put things in this order? So, anyway, there. let's talk a little bit more about these, like, frames that, that people were breaking. Kind of this whole, like, general issue around, like, the, you know, technological advancement and why people were, like, kind of against that. 
So um, when these frames were first introduced in the late 16th century, they were like one of the major breakthroughs in the Industrial Revolution. Um, the Industrial Revolution, you know, developed through the 19th century to the point that it was really like devastating the lives of a lot of people in the British Isles. Like the the technology had advanced, but the society to like match the technology had not advanced. It was being used like for exploitation oh, wow. more than, you know, to like you know, just have um, a better process for everyone, right? Um, and because of that, it was not only the frame breakers who, like, broke out in these, like, protests and stuff. And Ned Ludd is not the only kind of mysterious figure that I'm going to talk about um, in this episode. I'm going to mention just a couple of others oh. that are, are um, a little bit more mysterious, so but weird. but in, in, a, in a different way. So, yeah, there are these... So if you look up this Ned Ludd like on... Weird. <laughs> if you look up Ned Ludd on Wikipedia, it like at the bottom of the page it points you also to Captain Swing, as well as the Rebecca riots. So I'm gonna just like, gonna talk about those and the mystery that surrounds those as well. So first, let's talk about Captain Swing. Okay. <laughs> so Captain Swing was supposedly, according to Wikipedia, a quote hardworking tenant farmer driven to destitution and despair by social and political change in the early 19th century, close quote. So again, you know, um, downtrodden by the British man. And um, again, perhaps a person who may have actually existed that this is based on. Um, but certainly what we know is real at is, you know, those changes were happening. The despair was certainly real. And um, for many, the breaking point was the introduction of a horse-powered threshing machine that um, eliminated the need for many workers, um, you know, kind of akin to the automation kind of, you know, thing we're experiencing right now, right? Robots replacing people has been a thing since the 19th century, right? In a way. Um, and, and this just devastated the lives of a lot of people. Um, and those people, some of some of them respond by rioting, mainly peacefully at first, but eventually there were many instances of arson. Um, and, and this was especially true in this period from October to December of 1830. Um, and there's also this kind of mystery within the mystery here of how connected or coordinated were the peaceful rioters in the street and the arsonists. It seems like maybe there was some, you know, among some of them, there was some coordination or contact. But, there, I mean, it's it's interesting, again, this happens today, too. You know, yeah. like, there's some big protest in Portland, and, you know, a bunch of cars get burned. And, but, like, you know, that's, like, 100 people, and then there's, like, 5,000 other people who didn't do anything and have no, nothing to do with those people. But right, but then it's right. made out to seem as if they're all the same. Yeah. So there's a mystery that's created. Yes. You know, by propaganda networks. We don't need to get into it. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like just like today. You know, these things get painted with a broad brush. So in the case of the swing riots, there also seem um, – there, there also were these um, kind of threatening letters that were sent out in addition to the peaceful protest and the arsons. Um, mm. And these were, some of them, signed by this moniker, right, Captain Swing. Okay. And I, I, want, I wanted to, and some of these are in the Wikipedia page, I just wanted to read a couple in a, a bad British accent, if that's, oh, God. If that's okay. If that's okay with you. All right, everybody. Sir. Plug your ears. Your name is down amongst the black arts in the black book, and this is to advise you 
and the like of you, who are parson justices, to make your wills. Ye have been the blackguard enemies of the people on all occasions. <laughs> ye have not done as ye ought. Swing. That was, the, that was the first one, and here's the second one. Okay, okay. You can listen to it back later. Back to it later. <laughs> Sir, this is to acquaint you that if your threshing machines are not destroyed by you directly, we shall commence our labors. Signed on behalf of the whole, swing. That was also like maybe 40% Australian. Sure. I mean, maybe he spent some time, you know, <laughs> in Australia, you know, and then he came back, yeah. you know. For some petty crime, picked up a bit of an we accent. We don't even know if he's real. <laughs> exactly. This accented person. Um, <laughs> lastly, we're going to talk about the Rebecca riots. Rebecca. The Becky. Rebecca. The Becky riots. And they are not called the Becky riots. They're called the Rebecca riots. <laughs> so these were a little bit later, between 1839 and 1843 in South and Mid Wales. And... Um, just just to be clear, while there were many women who participated in the frame-breaking of the other associated riots that I was talking about, you know, throughout the 19th century, the Rebecca riots were specifically not women. These were carried out by men who were dressed as women. What? And who called themselves the Rebeccas. Yes, this was a thing that actually happened. <laughs> and they did this partly to, you know, just like with like the Boston Tea Party or whatever, to confuse the authorities, right, and people so they would, you know, wouldn't know who they were. Um, so that seems to be like, you know, the disguise of it seems to be the, the main motive for like doing this. And what they were smashing, because there's always something you have to smash, right, in these things, is what were uh, these uh, toll gates. So, um, like a toll road, you know, but old-timey. Super old-timey. Just think about a toll road and then super old-timey. And that's what they were protesting against? Yes, because they were, like, farmers and stuff, and they would have to take their crops to market. And then there were these fucking tolls from the fucking British, you know, way over there, who were just taking all our money. And the rent is too damn high. And <laughs> so they were going to smash. And, um, the, you know, these were also very destructible. They were just sitting there. Um, and they were a very potent symbol of the government oppression that these people were feeling in, in, in this area of Wales at the time. And um, this Welsh area was, you know, feeling really squeezed by a few different factors. First... There was a, a bad harvest in, in during those years. Then inflation uh, made their, their crops, you know, um, not worth as much. And so, you know, when they started getting these, you know, sort of government, you know, um, uh, tariffs, right, tolls, it just was like the breaking point. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, the, you know, they also had uh, just, like, their, you know, frame breakers before them, these rents and the tithes and the tolls and, like, the country lords that were screwing them and the central government in London that was screwing them. And, like, yeah, they were just like, we are going to break something. Um, and when the men went out to toll break, um, they would dress as these Rebeccas. Yes. And just... according to Wikipedia, they uh, would perform a little skit. With, quote-unquote, Mother Rebecca asking her children, the other men there, to, to, to break the toll, what should be done about this pesky toll gate in the way? 
whereupon the children, right, would reply that it must be taken down. You're not then, fucking with me, right? And then they would smash it. I'm just repeating words that are on Wikipedia, <laughs> just to be clear. I did not, like, read about this anywhere else, but I assume it's true. <laughs> they, have, they have links on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> oh, my God. This one is unbelievable. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And they Good don't... use of theater. Wait, so what's what's the mystery? The mystery is who were these people? Because they oh, would disguise themselves oh. as the Rebecca's. Well, oh, okay. I know it's a little tenuous, but I wanted to talk about it. That's fair. <laughs> um, so that that's pretty much everything that I have. Um, who was Medlud? Who was that guy? And the frame breaker, the great frame breaker, and who were you know the anonymous rioters who signed Captain Swing? What you know, and who were these mysterious Rebecca's who broke the tolls? The, those are my three mysteries for this week. The mysterious Rebecca's, right? The, the, those are my three uh, not so mysterious mysteries for this week. So that's okay. All kinds of mysteries, and of course, as always, embrace the mystery. Um, okay, my sources, obviously Wikipedia, the Ned Ludd page, the Captain Swing page, the Stocking Frame page, the Rebecca Riots page. Um, this really good website called A Web of English History by Dr. Marjorie Bloy, um, that seemed like it had a lot of stuff on there. Um, like I said, The Skilled Laborer, 1760 to 1832, which is by John Lawrence Hammond. And, uh, just for context, is published, it was published in 1919. See you. That is it for this week for my story. Yay! Yeah. So we're back. We <laughs> we're still here. We're back by popular demand. Don't forget us. Um, you can also, like we did, you know, get updates on our Instagram page and Facebook and uh, Twitter. Yeah. And my Twitter's MarioTex30. I continue to voice my political and news opinions on there so i'm not gonna give out my twitter but it's not hard to find either so yeah I so um i think we can issue the uh news for this week we can <laughs> yeah i think i think i'm ready to <laughs> we're not gonna talk about oj simpson's twitter page uh no that's okay okay <laughs> okay that's thanks, actually y'all. fair yeah okay thank you guys so much and for being patient for with us thank you for listening and sticking with us oh and um i did get the email we're gonna do like a uh, fan ghost story next week mm, are we are we gonna keep it to our patreon subscribers we'll decide it's a mystery okay it's bye. a mystery <laughs> bye bye